Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. But the Father always saw him that way. When he looked at the Son, he didn't see what others saw. He saw his Son. And it's a glorious picture for us because when he looks at me, when he looks at you, at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees his son. I look at me, I see my sin. He looks at me, he sees his son. Today we have part one of a two-part message Pastor Sam has entitled, Jesus Transfigured. We're looking at Mark chapter nine, starting in verse one. And the subject of today's study, well, it's Jesus Transfigured. Who would have thought? So let's dive in and be blessed. Mark nine, one through 32, Jesus Transfigured. We begin Mark nine, one, and he said to them, assuredly I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter answered and said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Well, I want to say, as we continue from this point on in our study, we should all become aware of the fact that Jesus has a habit of following bad news with good news. So I just want you to be sensitive to it so you'll start to recognize it. Not far back in our passage last time, he had mentioned that, well, the cross was ahead for him. That sounded like really bad news. We know it's a part of the good news. But when he said, I'm going up and I'll be handed over and I'll be crucified, that was bad news. The good news, I'll rise again the third day. He told them if they wanted to follow him, they were going to have to deny themselves, take up their cross. That sounds like bad news because, well, they didn't even understand what he meant by the cross. And certainly denying themselves didn't come naturally. The good news, if they did those, then they could follow him. And we're going to see this pattern established as we continue through this gospel. Well, chapter 9, verse 1 connects the prophecies of his cross at the end of the last passage, the necessity of theirs, deny self, take up your cross, follow me, to his second coming in the glory of his Father. Some have this actual verse, verse 1, in the last chapter. The reason is simple. There were no chapters. There were no verses. There were no subtitles. The scripture was just on a scroll and it was just the scripture. So when the time came to break it up, not everyone agreed every time on where the division should take place. 
Is it a big deal? Not really. Because you should always be looking at what preceded when you're reading in the scripture and look at what follows, lest you take a verse or a paragraph and, and something, it appears to be something that the prior verses or those that follow would obviously and perfectly show you, no, that's not what it's saying. That's not what he's trying to say. Well, anyway, this was a preview, by the way. He says in chapter 9, verse 1, Assuredly, I say, some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. This is fulfilled literally for three of them within the week. And so it's a preview of what's coming. Not just the cross, not just the suffering, not just the tomb, but resurrection and glory. Glory to follow. Well, we read it, verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. He led them up. I like that. The good shepherd leads his sheep. He doesn't beat them. He doesn't chase them. He doesn't threaten them. He just leads them up to a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. The word transfigured comes from two Greek words, meta, which means a change or a transfer. And um, let's see, meta... Hmm, I'm looking at the Greek word, and I apparently no longer know what it is. Metamorphe. There you go. You look at it long enough, it starts to look somewhat familiar, sort of like you in the mirror in the morning. So metamorphe. Morphe means form. So this is a change or a transfer of form. Now, in Jesus' case, this is a radical thing because what they're getting to see was what was actually inside all along. When they see him glowing and glistening as bright as the sun, as bright as lightning, as bright as the snow, I believe our passage says, but all of those could be used of this word. They see him glowing. They're seeing his actual essence as what was within began to show on the outside for them. So to be transfigured is to be transformed, in his case, from this earthly form where his humanity, if you will, was actually hiding his deity. They saw him, and from time to time, he let them see more of him. His actual essence, his actual nature, truly God, deity, and truly man, humanity. Now, the greatest difference here is they see Jesus just as he will be. But the father always saw him that way. When he looked at the son, he didn't see what others saw. He saw his son. And it's a glorious picture for us because when he looks at me, when he looks at you, at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees his son. I look at me. I see my sin. He looks at me. He sees his son. And not just a son. He sees his son who's taken up residence within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Well, I mentioned it in my prayer, his prayer. Father, I want him to be with me and see the glory I had with you before the world began. Ultimately, that prayer will be answered. 
It will be answered for them. They're going to see a preview. And then at some point later, they'll be with him. It will be answered for all of us who are in Christ Jesus, who've put our faith in and given our life to him. We will either see him in glory through death and resurrection. And by the way, on this side of the cross, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So the moment you breathe your last here, you breathe your first there. The moment you close your eyes here, you open your eyes there. Only you will be transformed. You will be transfigured. You will be perfected. And you'll look on him. You'll see him as he is. And you will be like him. If that doesn't happen to you, there can only be one of two reasons. Either you don't come to Christ, so when you die, you won't be with Christ, or you'll be alive at the time of the, the uh, resurrection. And Paul tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them and with him in the air. Thus, we will forever be with our Lord. So, Jesus, again, the prototype of God's perfect man. I don't remember where I first heard it. He's man's perfect God because he is God the Son and the Son of God. He is the true and living God along with Father and Holy Spirit. And then he is God's perfect man because he reveals what God intended in the very first place. He reveals what Adam was like before the fall, a perfect man. What Eve was like before the fall, a perfect woman. So it's a glorious reality. God already has transformed us internally. And he's still working on us. We're, uh, uh, we're in progress. We're, we're uh, you know, something that, that for God, even if there's anything that's difficult for God, it's making us just like his son, Jesus. But he promises to get that work done. He who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. So he works on us from the inside out. This is the danger of religion because religion is interested in conforming someone from the outside in. It's first how you look and how you talk and how you dress and how you walk and how everything appears to be. But Jesus isn't as interested in mere appearance, especially if the appearance is a facade it isn't reality or doesn't reflect the reality within. He's interested in the reality within us. So when he transforms us, he doesn't just give us laws and rules and regulations to say, do this and don't do that, and then you'll be fine. He saves us from our sin. He begins to transform us into people who hate what he hates, sin, because it defiles people and destroys lives and families and, and fellowships and countries. Our world. And so Jesus, again, through resurrection or the rapture, will bring us to him. His prayer will be answered. We'll see the glory he had with the Father before the world began. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Paul writes, speaking of this glorious transformation we'll experience, I say to you, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye 
at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. I like that. From corrupt and mortal to incorruptible and immortal. That's the transformation that's going to take place. Until then, Romans 12, 2 reminds us that we play a part in this process. We make decisions every day as he's trying to mold and shape us in the way we think, in the way we see the world, in the way we see one another, in the way we respond to one another. Romans 12, 2 says, stop being conformed to this world but be being transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, but we all with unveiled face, seeing as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory transformed within, being transformed daily by the renewing of our minds, and then someday in his presence, just like Jesus. Well, we press on. Verse 4, Elijah appears to them with Moses. They were talking with Jesus. Moses, of course, and most of you are aware, was the lawgiver. God gave him the law to give to the people. He came down that mountain with the Ten Commandments in hand. In fact, he was the first to ever see them. He was the first to ever break, and to my knowledge, the only one to break all Ten Commandments at once. He broke the Ten Commandments when he saw the people partying down there in the valley, and, and it was a lewd gathering. The, the implications of all of it is they start saying, hey, whatever happened to old Moses? I don't know. It's been a while. And he's up there seeing the glory of God and getting the word of God and, and basking and so much so that when he came down the mount, his face would be glowing from that experience. But that's a radiated, I mean, that's a reflected, excuse me, glory. The glory that we possess even today is meant to be a radiating glory. What's the difference? Reflection just says, okay, the sun shines on me. There's some glow that comes from that, but it will fade. But the glory within, it radiates both love and warmth, like a radiant heater, right? And, and so that's the idea. That's the picture that, that the warmth is within, the love's within. It's not just me reflecting him, but radiating him as he lives through me and in me and in you. Well, Moses, the lawgiver, Jesus, by the way, the only one who ever kept the law, the only one who then fulfilled the law. And then Elijah, he's the first of the major prophets. He is the greatest of the prophets, mighty miracle worker. So you have the law and you have the prophets. And we saw earlier in our study, the law and the prophets were unto John. Why? The law pointed to Jesus, the one who would fulfill it, who would keep it. The prophets pointed to Jesus, the one who would fulfill their prophecies. And hundreds were fulfilled in his first coming. Any that haven't been will be fulfilled in his second coming. Just as the first batch was fulfilled literally, the second will be fulfilled literally as well. So you have, 
You have the law, you have the prophets, and then you have the one of whom both spoke and pointed to. Well, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. It's important to note two things here. Neither are in this passage, but you'll find them both in Luke. They spoke to Jesus about his cross, about his decease. The actual word in the Greek is exodus. So they're talking about the way Jesus would lead us out of bondage to sin and slavery to self and selfishness into the glorious freedom we have in Christ to live for him and glorify him and bless people because we're more interested in them than pleasing ourselves. So, so they're talking to him about some pretty serious stuff. Just as Moses led the children out of Egypt, Jesus leads his flock out of bondage by going to the cross first for us, dying for our sins, buried and risen again. In the midst of all of that, oh, and there's one other thing, and you can check it out later and should. Luke 9, 31, make a mental note or jot it down. Luke 9, 31, they spoke of his departure, his decease, his exodus, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. It's a word I don't think they would have really thought of when they were seeing Jesus on the cross. But he was accomplishing his mission there. He came to die for our sins. He prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a, um, a failure on his part. It wasn't the Romans got him or the Jews betrayed him, though that's true for both. Jesus willingly gave up his life. He accomplished what he came to do so we could have life everlasting. The other thing we learn in Luke's gospel, and he's the only one that I recall sharing it, is that the fellas had fallen asleep. Now they've got a bad habit. He takes them, they get some quiet, spending a little time, and they're like starting to snooze. And I've noticed that I have something in common with Peter, probably a few things, but I have this. When I first wake up, I'm a little groggy and disoriented. It was terrifying when I would wake up and my, my boy, something had happened and, you know, one had done something to the other. This is when they were little and I was young and inexperienced. Some of you were there today. And anyway, I'd hear this blood curdling scream and, and I'd run in and I'm, you know, I wake up and I run in there and I'm all disheveled and crazy looking. And, and I'm like, what happened? What happened? And he goes, he took my toy. You know, that kind of tragedy, right? That, 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 but, but here's my point in even sharing this. When Peter wakes up, He's kind of not all there yet. We see it in this passage because he wakes up, he sees Moses, he sees Elijah, he sees Jesus, he knows they're talking and he's like, hey, hey, I got an idea. Let's set up some tabernacles, one for each of you. And, and what's, what's he saying? 
We could actually establish the kingdom here and now. That would be the purpose of this. See, set up three little thrones, three little tabernacles so that Jesus can start to rule and reign. He knows, as the others should, that Elijah has to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah's there. He knows that Moses is going to be around, or at least that you would hope. And so, so he has this idea, but it says he said it because he didn't know what to say and because they were afraid. Here's a tip. If you don't know what to say, be quiet. It's, uh, it's hard for me because I'm a talker, right? And, and I always talk and think. I just usually do them in that order. And, and, you know, some of you are like me. You talk and then you think and you're like, I probably should have thought first. But, but there's something else. Later, we'll see this same thing. It's not an isolated event or I wouldn't have drawn your attention to it. When Jesus is in the garden praying just before he's arrested and then brutally beaten and scourged and ultimately crucified, Peter and the guys are sleeping again. And as they are, when Jesus wakes them up, Peter gets up and same thing. He doesn't really know what's happening. He sees all the soldiers, sees the, the torches and the crowd and he grabs his sword. One of the disciples said, shall we strike with the sword? Jesus said, no. But Peter wasn't listening because he was too busy protecting the Lord as he promised he would, making sure no one took the Lord as he was sure he could. But all he got was the high priest's servant's ear. And it's a little suspect because the ear he cuts off makes it suggest the guy was going the other way, trying to get away. But anyway, all of that to say, these guys wake up from a nap. Actually, Luke calls it a very deep sleep. Peter interrupts this oh-so-important conversation with what he considers to be an awesome idea idea. Well, then what happens? The cloud overshadows them. I like that word. It, it, it's kind of like it should have music with it. Dun, 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 dun. You know, the, just something ominous because the, everything's great. It's sh sun shining and everything. All of a sudden, the cloud not only comes, but descends upon them. This is the cloud that led Israel through the wilderness wandering. This is the cloud that filled the tabernacle with glory so much so they could not even perform their service there. This is the cloud from which the father spoke to Moses on the mountain when he gave him the law. And this is the cloud from which the father speaks now. It's another deja vu this time for Moses. Because he's been here before and he's seen that cloud descend and he's heard the father's voice. Well, what does he say? This is my beloved son. Hear him. We read, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's in Hebrews. Peter, by the way, recalls the father's voice, the father's words. John, exiled on Patmos, has an even greater vision of the Lord as he sees him in Revelation chapter 1 in all his glory. And so you should check that out. I would read it to you, but I did it last night and things went a little long. That wouldn't be good with another service following. 
But you check out chapter one, especially from verse nine down to verse 20, Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Well, as Peter begins to think that he has things figured out and wants to build the three tabernacles, in essence, as Pastor Sam commented, to usher in the kingdom of God, God speaks up and shuts him down immediately. This is my beloved son, hear him, he says. We all have preconceived ideas of what the kingdom of God is going to look like, what's going to happen next and when, how things are all going to play out, and many other views regarding biblical truths, especially end times events. And we can cling to our take on things tighter than we cling to the Lord, even to the point where we allow it to cause division amongst our brethren. And I believe this is one of the reasons why God said, hear him. In essence, the Lord is saying, don't rely on your own understanding of things. Listen to him and obey him, even if it flies in the face of what you think you believe. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.